Hello and welcome back, listeners. It feels good to be recording after finishing my midterms. On this episode, I am talking to Professor Guy Knapp about some of the unique features of American constitutionalism and how um, some of our modern notions of American constitutionalism emerged after the ratification debates in Philadelphia. So please enjoy. Well, welcome, Professor Guy Knapp. Um, today, we are going to talk about your book, The Second Creation. Um, so the first question I generally like to ask is, what was the inspiration or what was the question um, that you were seeking to answer um, when you were just starting out with a blank page and needed to think out the book? Yeah. Uh... That's a particularly good question for me because when I initially started out, I did not expect to be writing a book on constitutional debates following ratification of the U.S. Constitution. Um, I was interested in constitutionalism, deeply interested in it. I was interested in its connections to uh, the political ideas of the American Revolution. Uh, and like a, a lot of people who study in that field, I was mostly preoccupied by what came before or led up to 1787-1788. Um, and I spent a lot of time in that material, and I was expecting to write something on constitutionalism in the 1770s and 1780s. And then I asked myself, well, what happened to constitutional debate right after the Constitution was ratified? There's an enormous historical literature on party politics and political ideology following ratification, the emergence of you know, in the face of Hamiltonian finance, how the Jefferson, Jeffersonian Republican Party takes shape, the Washington administration, so on and so forth. There's sort of broad allusions to constitutional debate, but not sort of focused ones. And I sort of was, got really curious what, what happened after ratification was, featured this sort of deep dive into the Constitution. And I found a, a series of debates that I was less familiar with. Um, and I came to appreciate that legal scholars and others had looked at um, far more than historians, but generally um, these debates seem to me uh, to not have received the attention they deserved. And I started to appreciate that actually this sort of conventional story of American constitutional creation that culminated in 1787 and 88 um, really needed to be extended into the 1790s because these debates in so many ways were crucial to that story. So that's how I ended up writing about it. Um, and it was unexpected in a way that I, I, I think was really good. Yeah, so without getting into the specific aspects of like a view of constitutionalism premised on fixity, the way I understand your book is it's challenging us when we are looking back at the founding not to impose our conceptions of uh, constitutionalism and assume that they shared them. Um, so how would you say uh, the story you're trying to tell differs from pretty much all the conventional stories told on the Constitution today? Um, and, and why does it matter if the Constitution was imagined initially um, in a different sense um, by the founders? Um, so like how does understanding their own different conception of the constitution um cause us to uh break with uh conventional wisdom on the 
constitution's development? Great question. It gets right to the heart of the book and you, you, you certainly um, have read it correctly. Uh, so th there, there are a few ways to, to, to answer this. So the reason why I, I try to push back against conventional narratives is because I think it can be so easy to assume that the constitution is just the constitution and not recognize that when we talk about the constitution, point to it, debate it, we often presuppose a whole series of assumptions that actually owe their source to later developments that could have gone a different way. That doesn't make them any less legitimate or any less strong, but it invites us to think about what was actually there in 1787 and how might what followed have done a great deal to shape how we see 1787 and how those things could be different. And here, something that I, I, I started out believing something quite differently was the sort of legacy of British constitutionalism in the United States. Um, Americans waged their struggle for independence in the name of the British constitution rather than against it. They thought the British constitution was great and that British officials who were in charge of the government, who were tyrannizing them, had corrupted it, had broken with its tenets. And one way in which the story is often told is that Americans, after deciding to declare independence and create their own constitutional order, actually break pretty sharply from the British constitutional tradition. Rather than have something that's more customary, more unwritten in character, uh, they move to something that is expressly written um, and carries with it um, a notion of, of sort of textual constitutionalism rather than customary one. Mm -hmm. And what I started to appreciate was that actually a sense of having a written constitution carrying those connotations was not immediately present when Americans wrote their constitutions in 1776, that it was actually a process of thinking about what what that act of having a written constitution might mean that created that sort of cultural consciousness, if you will. And a lot of matter of fact things that were said 25 years or so later, say in John Marshall's, Chief Justice John Marshall's famous opinion of Marbury v. Madison, drawing this sort of sharp distinction between British and US constitutionalism, uh, was less the cause of writing constitutions and was more its eventual and by no means inevitable byproduct. So I got really interested in how in 1787, people who were, who were drawing up the new constitution didn't immediately think of it in these sort of avowedly textual written terms, that they often thought of it in other ways. And it was only once they kind of unleashed the constitution on the world and people began debating it, that some of those stronger distinctions between having a written constitution, having an unwritten constitution, thinking of the constitution in structural systemic terms rather than thinking of it in sort of more legal prescriptive terms really sharpened up. So I, I started, you know, if I, I really was eager to emphasize how the debates did so much to create those assumptions rather than those assumptions are just there in a sort of primordial sense in the constitution. And I think this matters for today because it forces us then to reckon with the things we take for granted. If we are making arguments about how to interpret the constitution today or what to do with it, which is something that all Americans are invested in, 
most arguments people make presuppose a set of assumptions, um, and we often take some of those assumptions for granted. If some of those assumptions that we tend to make about the Constitution uh, perhaps have a different origin or provenance than we thought, does that then change how we think about the kind of essential nature of those assumptions? Could those assumptions be different? Um, maybe, maybe not. But I think it's an invitation to then think about what we're taking for granted and whether or not this history challenges us to offer new accounts for why we take them for granted. Um, and if they're not so essential, if, it, if, we, if we're permitted to think about the Constitution in other ways, should we or should we not? The answer might be yes or no, but it opens up those questions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, before we get deeper into talking about some of the features of British constitutionalism, um, why do you think interpretation would be an inappropriate or inaccurate label to assign the extent of our interaction with the Constitution post the enactment at Philadelphia and ratification debates? Is it because interpretation um, only connotes unlocking meaning without reference to really creating new meaning or is uh, labeling the like period of like the creation of the American Republic period basically, um, is it objectionable based on some other aspect that it reduces and um, misses out on? Great question, because I think most people treat this as a period of interpretation. You create a constitution, you ratify it, then you interpret it. That's of course not wrong in a sense, but what I'm trying to get people to see by pushing back against the activity of interpretation is that at this moment, sort of T1, if you will, um, when they went to interpret the constitution, they rarely could do so, and at least in these particular debates that I look at, without recognizing that making a set of interpretive claims required actually making a bunch of larger arguments about what kind of a thing the constitution even was, whether or not it came with certain kinds of interpretive protocols or not. If it didn't, where did those rules of interpretation come from? So even small specific claims about this particular clause or that particular clause meaning something usually required a bigger account of constitutionalism itself. So for interpretation to work, it, you needed that foundation beneath it. And that, it was off, that foundation was often lacking precisely because they didn't have what we have today, which is over 200 years of experience that kind of builds up a shared cultural consciousness um, that you can fall back on. They realized that you could answer these things in wholly different ways. So, um, and people did. So even when people weren't, had no desire for this conversation to sprawl beyond the small interpretive point they were making, they recognized that they were potentially vulnerable to critics who would raise objections of a more fundamental nature and, and say, I don't necessarily disagree with how you're reading those words. I just don't understand why you're even going, why you're even approaching the constitution this way or why you would assume that it would be silent on this issue or, or other sorts of things. Um, so that's why I, I, I try to push back against interpretation because I want people to see that it's a much broader activity that they couldn't escape. So before we uh, really dive into American notions of a fixed constitution, 
Could you go and explain the key features of British constitutionalism, which was our heritage? Like initially, I think of the two-tiered system with colonial charters and how that correlates nicely to system of federalism, the idea of higher law. I could go on and on about how many different features have inspired. Um, American political practice, um, but could you just explain um, the heritage there? Sure, and everything you just said was, was spot on. Uh, so British constitutionalism uh, was both descriptive and prescriptive. So it was descriptive in the sense that it was often understood to be a description of how politics in the realm and power was constituted. So it was a description of the relationship between the monarchy and the two houses of parliament. And then more broadly, when you move to the empire, the relationship between this metropole and its various colonies on the peri periphery. But it was also prescriptive in the sense that it was not just a description as we might think the constitution of the human body or the constitution of a building. It was also, um, a set of fixed principles that if you studied this system and the various things that had been laid down and established over time, the various precedents and the customs that had been laid down, you would discover a set of higher law principles that were supposed to guide, govern, constrain all of these activities of those in power. Certain fixed maxims that if the king violated one of them, then the king was, was, was in violation of the constitution of parliament overstepped these bounds, so on and so forth. Um, and, and out of these fell certain robust notions of constitutional rights and liberties um, that people could, could mobilize behind and make claims on, which is precisely what Americans began doing in the 18th century. Um, a lot of it was unwritten because it was descriptive and customary in character, but a lot of it too was written. Uh, went back to sort of seminal written texts that had become part of the tradition, Magna Carta in 1215, the English Bill of Rights in 1689. These were seen as markers of some of these essential principles that made up the British constitutional tradition. And in the American context, their charters came to obtain this status. They were just seen as ordinary corporate charters for most of the 17th century. But over the course of living under them and trying to carve out spaces of autonomy in the British Empire, colonial Americans constitutionalized their charters in a sense, such that by the time of independence, they saw them as quasi-constitutional documents, quasi-written constitutions that were effectively filters or stand-ins for this broader British constitutional tradition. So they always thought that some of these basic rights that one had as a constitutional subject, the right to trial by jury and other such things were embedded in this charter constitutional tradition because of the British constitution more generally. Yeah, so as I was listening to you speak, um, I began to think how much do you think when, um, America or Britain comes up with their notions and imaginings of constitutionalism. How much do you think the cultural backdrop matters for that? And I am thinking of that because I'm thinking of how America 
was more participatory than even Britain, um, obviously against aristocracy and didn't have the same established set of class structure comparatively, at least obviously today we would say they did. Um, but like, how does that affect um, notions of constitutionalism specifically i guess you could you could talk about like um tacit consent versus americans wanting consent um in like a discrete generation um and more intentional as well um yeah it's a great question because one of the things that the revolution brings to the fore that it really clarifies is the profound differences between colonial American and British society. And this quietly impacts constitutionalism in a range of ways before the imperial crisis. The sheer fact that simply applying the same land holding requirements for voting that were customarily applied in Britain, applying those to the colonies meant significantly more white men could vote because land holding was so much more widespread wealth inequality was significantly less. It was still pronounced, as you said, but nowhere close to how unequal it was in Europe, where the top sliver of society had a monopoly on so much. So more people are involved in the process of choosing political representatives, particularly in the lower houses of assembly. And out of this grows a robust tradition of these lower houses of assembly being many parliaments of a kind. And especially in the wake of the Glorious Revolution, with so many people feeling as though these bodies, like the House of Burgesses in Virginia, speak for them and represent their interests, it really lays the groundwork for the challenge that the imperial crisis um, brings to the fore of Americans basically saying, you cannot, not only can you not tax us, you really can't legislate for us, white Americans saying this. Now, it, it actually becomes more interesting in the wake of, of independence when Americans write their first constitutions because they're forced to struggle with their inherited tradition of mixed constitutionalism, which they think is so great, going all the way back to Aristotle, that there are a whole series of different regimes that one could choose. You can either have rule of the one, the few, or the many, and they both have good constitutions and perverted constitutions that, that, that come out of giving the one, the few, or the many power. Britain's constitution was considered so successful because it didn't choose it gave the one, the few, and the many an equal share of power. So the crown had a share of power, the House of Lords, the House of Commons. Americans looked around and said, well, we don't have a monarch, and this is a Republican revolution, we don't want one. And we don't have an aristocracy. We don't have a titled nobility, and that's a good thing. So some people like Pennsylvanians who are radical say, well, that means we should mix constitutionalism properly applied to the United States means having a unicameral legislature with almost unchecked authority because we don't need a house of lords and a monarchy. We just have a house of commons. But other people who are skeptical of this then have to search out creatively for new justifications for bicameralism or why you will have an executive with actual prerogative powers, perhaps the veto power, maybe an appointment power, 
and they can't be based on this older notion of mixed constitutionalism. So that 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 cultural divergence that you asked about, or that social divergence, proves enormously important to the trajectory of American constitutionalism because it fuels a lot of the debates that people are having. So if they're calling constitutional conventions and they're taking very seriously a notion of consent in the people's role, that carries with it um, a debate over what does it mean to represent the people in government? Can you represent the people multiple times? Because in Britain, they were represented once. They, the House of Commons represents the people. The House of Lords doesn't represent the people. It represents a distinct socialist state. So if you're going to have a House of Representatives and a Senate on the state level or the federal level, what are these things actually representing? Can the people's representation be parceled out in multiple ways, or does it need to be located in one particular place? So many of the big questions that, that fuel early American constitutionalism grow out of that precise social divergence. Yeah, I was, uh, we can relate it to the imperial, imperial crisis now, but talking about like sovereignty and the different conceptions that Americans and Britons had on sovereignty. Um, how important is, is that difference? Um, I, I'm, for the record, I'm writing a research paper later that just focuses on um, the evolution of popular sovereignty at the American founding. So it's a bit of a preoccupation of mine, but Wonderful. That's a good preoccupation to have. Uh, I'm working on a new book that that is exploring popular sovereignty and its connection to other things in the early United States, a, a really rich and important topic that um, a lot can be said on it. So I'm delighted to hear that. Yeah, I mean, sovereignty is the master concept of 18th century Western political and constitutional thinking. Uh, it, it, in many ways, the American Revolution at least the debates that Americans have with British metropolitan officials is over sovereignty. It's over the nation, the, the nature of sovereignty. And the British keep saying sovereignty is, as it's always been classically understood, indivisible and effectively unaccountable. Um, every layer of power culminates in wherever sovereignty is located. That's the final check. And if you're part of the British realm, then you're subject to the sovereignty of the king in parliament. And if you're not subject to that, then you're not in the realm because sovereignty can't be divided. Now, what's interesting is that Americans very much accept this idea. They have a hard time. They don't argue in the face of that, here are all the ways sovereignty can be divided. They instead try to draw all these distinctions that explain how they're subject to parliament's authority, but somehow outside its jurisdiction. And then ultimately, of course, uh, decide to declare independence and announce what the British were effectively saying they were committed to, uh, a sense of their own sovereignty. They then have to solve these problems on the other side though. Where is sovereignty in the United States? And this takes a, a variety of different forms. In the States, it takes the form of are we trying to create our own versions of the king in parliament here? And we don't necessarily have, we don't have a king. So when we construct these new state governments, are those governments sovereign? Are the people sovereign? And what does it actually mean if the people are sovereign? Are they sovereign in kind of a Lockean sense of, you effectively delegate your sovereign authority 
you just always have the right to reclaim it through a right of resistance and other such things? Or do they have it in a more active way? And one of the things that happens is some Americans, although not everybody is immediately on board with this idea, begin really emphasizing the importance of special lawmaking procedures to set up constitutions, to try to create um, a, a set of protocols that allow the people to maintain their sovereignty. So you have constitutional conventions that both write and ratify constitutions, which means that the government that is under that, um, that is created out of that process is itself never fully sovereign. The people have the authority to kind of call a new constitutional convention or something equivalent, which is far less dramatic than what the Declaration of Independence required, which is the sort of right of resistance. That's in the state level, and that's developing in the 1770s and 1780s, this idea that people can be sovereign outside of government in a new way. But there's also the complicated question of federalism and the federal union. There's first the question of, are the states or the union sovereign? Or if the people are sovereign and not either the states or the union, which people? The people of the states? <laughs> or the people of the United States, or is it the peoples of the United States? Lots of people have lots of different questions and uh, lots of different answers to these, these questions. And they, they really explode on the scene um, in the 1780s after, after sort of being held at bay during the, the early years of the war and the writing of the Articles of Confederation. But by the time you get to the late 1780s and the 1790s and the federal constitution, you have all these complex ideas colliding especially because the Federalists or those who become Federalists who have, um, who support the Constitution's ratification have really seized the right of revolution of a kind in Philadelphia. There's, the delegates are sent there to revise the Articles of Confederation. And you could say that throwing out the Articles of Confederation and replacing it with a new Constitution is revising it, but many people thought that that was an unacceptable answer. So what is the justification for drawing up a new constitution. And it was, it was popular sovereignty was the idea they fell back on. Well, we're just proposing something. The people are sovereign. If they want it, we need to follow their wishes. But in terms of establishing rules for ratification, you're sending it to the states, but the state governments themselves won't be ratifying. It'll be special conventions in the states. Who actually is ratifying this? Again, is it the peoples of the separate states? Is it the people of the United States? Different people have different answers, and a lot of that is only really litigated, if you will, after ratification. But the idea of popular sovereignty then, what I'm trying to suggest, is both potent and explosive and essential. It's kind of the basis for how people think of so much of constitutionalism, but embedded within it is a lot of ambiguity that allows different people to emphasize different accounts of what it actually means to claim, contrary to what had been true in Britain, the people are sovereign. Yeah, no, just when I think about sovereignty and what you were saying, there's, I think it was like a speech on the colonies. Um, I'm not sure where Edmund Burke said that the British actions were going to cause the colonists to reconsider like the whole system of sovereignty, because I think the quote was like, no man can be argued into slavery. There was some mm -hmm. variation of that. Um, and I yeah. will. It's hard to say he was not prescient on that account. Um, 
moving on, how important or unimportant is it that Americans starting in their state constitutions began to have a discrete um, written text uh, with the label of constitution? Um, or is there a reason why this, as you've alluded to, this aspect of written constitutionalism is not as clean of a break with the old imaginings and conceptions of British constitutionalism as we would uh, reflexively believe today? Because the way I see, and you've been helpful to start to deconstruct this, but old habits die hard. The way I see the constitution is you have a single source of authority. It's a product of choice and will with a, actual author or set of authors in contrast to the common law of British constitutionalism, which is a bunch of disparate sources formed by custom and then drawing on an authority of tacit uh, consent. You drew that distinction perfectly and that was the distinction I very much thought was true before I started writing this book because I was struck as I looked at interpretive debates in the 1770s and 1780s, that when Americans begin writing their own constitutions, I couldn't find much evidence of them thinking that they had taken a step or created something along the lines of what you just described. And as I described, there's certainly traces of it, many of which come later, not in the 1770s, but when they reflect on in the 1780s, people start emphasizing things like, discrete choice, the importance of authorship, the idea that we can actually point to the moment it was created. Certainly some people emphasize its, its exclusive textual character. And you have certain quotes from Thomas Paine, James Iredell, others saying, the constitution's no imaginary thing. I can hold it in my hands. It's that thing right there. It, it doesn't exist kind of, you know, like some brooding omnipresence in the sky <laughs> to, to, to pull a different quote from American constitutionalism. So uh, you can certainly find these things, but what I was struck by is actually how few of them I could find. And then when I started to look at, 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 at the actual writing of the state constitution, what I was struck by was the degree to which they were tracing continuities between these new constitutions and the charters they had previously had. So in other words, rather than this marking sort of a radical break in a lot of their eyes, what they were doing is basically saying we had charters that we thought were kind of this central authoritative text, but was part of this wider field of fundamental law. And now we're replacing them with our own state constitutions. In the case of Rhode Island and Connecticut, they don't even write new constitutions. They just keep their charters and they delete whatever provisions are in there pledging loyalty to the king, which, you know, at least in, in the case of those two states, really points to continuity. But then I think you really see it in the debates, the relatively few debates, it's interesting that there are not more of them. There, there are far more debates when the federal constitution emerges. If you try to find equivalent debates from the 1790s and the 1770s and 80s, it's harder to find. Part of that is they're fighting a war, uh, so it's not terribly surprising. But the debates they do have, um, some of the most important of which culminate in these early judicial disputes that legal scholars had previously looked at or the extent to which they held the key to the origins of judicial review. These judges in different states, New York, Rhode Island, Virginia, North Carolina, New Hampshire, 
there are a whole series of cases. There are, there are about a half, half dozen to a dozen of them. When they were asked to answer this question, does this act of the legislature, does this, does this law that the state government has drawn up stand in violation of the constitution? Rather than citing chapter and verse or emphasizing a particularly written discrete notion of constitutionalism, they instead fall back on this capacious notion of fundamental law of which these constitutions are a part. But they seem very convinced that general principles of law as they understand them, um, the fact you can't have ex post facto laws, uh, the fact that you can't um, sort of violate certain vested rights of property are in their eyes part of the constitution, even if it's not necessarily um, expressly written in there. And what I found especially interesting is they don't even draw a distinction. It's not as though they would say, as we might say today, there's a written constitution and then an unwritten constitution around it. They just think it all melds together. And I think part of the reason why is unlike us today, we are for the most part live on the other side of a positivist legal revolution in which pretty much all law that is binding and can be enforced um, must have been posited by human agents at some point. Uh, be it expressly written or found in custom. In the 18th century, there were non-positive ideas of law that were pretty central to how people thought, that law to a certain degree like mathematics was out there. And they certainly thought lots of law was positive, but the way in which they saw positive and non-positive law supporting and reinforcing each other rather than being at odds seemed to me pretty essential to understanding how they actually argued about their state constitutions in the 1770s and 80s. And then it, it got me to see that the disentangling of these things, drawing the distinction you described so well, British constitutions, this disparate set of things, American constitution, we have it right here. I have it in my pocket, I can show it to you, is something that people only really began saying in earnest beginning in the 1790s, making that a distinctive feature of how people thought about things. Yeah, so we're almost there, but I have one more question before we get into American notions of fixity and how it played out. Um, for for a listener, it would seem odd that your book focuses in mainly on Congress when considering the Constitution, given nowadays we for like the sole authority of interpreting it we reflexively think of the judiciary. So before we get to any of the episodes with Congress and then how those lead to Americans' understanding of constitutionalism, um, why the choice of centering around uh, Congress? Great question, fundamental question, one I get a lot. Um, so it's certainly worth talking about. There's an implied argument which you've, you've already spoken to, which is, part of our constitutionalism today, our assumed understanding of how things work is that the Supreme Court is not only a, an enormously important actor, but in some ways the actor, the, the, the sort of final expositor of what the constitution means. So the first thing I'm trying to draw attention to is that wasn't at all what people thought would be the case coming out of ratification. And evidence of this is none of the major constitutional controversies big debates over what the constitution actually meant and required end up in court in the 1790s. The Supreme Court does a lot of important stuff. It's an important institution, 
I don't mean by not talking about it in this book to suggest that we should not be writing that early history or that we don't have an enormous amount to learn from it. It's very important. But to just take one example, the most important debate of the period, arguably, is the debate over the constitutionality of chartering a national bank, Alexander Hamilton's proposed bank. This doesn't go to court. At no other point in American history, of course, it goes to court a generation later, which leads to McCulloch v. Maryland. So imagine the fight over the Affordable Care Act, prolonged in the public and in Congress. Imagine if that ended and there was just an assumption that that was kind of the constitutional decision. That would be very strange. People, people didn't find anything strange about the fact that it was then taken to court and the Supreme Court weighed in. That seemed, that seemed pretty, pretty standard. That didn't violate anybody's intuition. So isn't it striking that none of these debates followed that same course? Nobody had those same intuitions that they thought, you know, James Madison and his allies lose the bank debate. They don't then go to federal court. That to me begins to suggest or, or points to how they're thinking about these things differently and we have to take that seriously. And given how they thought about Republican politics and that legislatures were so central and the fact that during ratification, when they talked about how the constitution would be constructed, interpreted, liquidated, fleshed out, added to, there are different ways they described it. They always talked about Congress. They never emphasized the presidency, they sometimes talked about the judiciary, but not, not to an extent that we would find normal. They talked about Congress. And one of that reason is also practical. There is no executive branch or, or judiciary really until Congress creates both. Congress is the first mover. Congress is the one in 1789 that holds the keys to the castle. Congress is where people are looking. Congress is the representative institution, the, you know, the sort of national organ. The fact we live in a world today where Congress does remarkably little, you could argue, and we have a system of vast presidential administration and robust judicial supremacy is really an inverted notion of the kind of Madisonian constitutionalism that I think most people would have predicted in 1788. So focusing on Congress, just the simple fact carries with it an argument of the inside out nature of how our constitutionalism has developed. So now that we've finally got there, what are the key aspects that makes Americans notion of constitutional um, fixity? And then how did the major events like Jay's Treaty or the Bill of Rights and um, other events in the 1790s inform and shape um, those debates and arguments? Great. So what I, what I really try to argue in the book is, is not that Americans go from thinking that constitutions are unfixed to thinking that they're fixed but that the idea of constitutional fixity that had always been around and had been central to the British constitutional tradition itself is transformed. So under the British constitutional tradition and Americans fully bought into this, constitutions were both fixed and changing, things that we consider incompatible. When constitutions changed, when new practices created new precedents and custom evolved, or common law decision-making shifted things in a certain direction. It was always assumed that this discovered the fixed principles that were always there. Over the course of the 1790s, as Americans, especially in Congress, have these focused debates over particular constitutional issues, they begin to emphasize the Constitution as a discrete text. 
the Constitution as something that was created at a particular moment. And out of that, begin to really suggest that what it means for the Constitution to be fixed is something very different than what it would be to say that the Constitution evolves and changes through ordinary practice. So a kind of language of constitutionalism that they had that they had had, they had used like second nature, begins to fall out of favor. It no longer makes much logical sense and it starts to create new choices that people either need to think of the constitution as fixed in this new kind of way or to repackage older ways of thinking of evolutionary change. And that that I think creates a new framework of debate that is really one of the key byproducts of the 1790s, that in a lot of ways, the debates we have are not because the Constitution is written or not because something in Philadelphia created something one particular way, but because we're the descendants of a framework of debate uh, that is very much developed in the 1790s out of these debates I looked at. So you ask, and I look at um, a series of specific debates, the debate over the removal of executive officers in the spring of 1789, which is really the first major constitutional debate, an unexpected debate. Um, and then the debate over adding amendments. Most people, when they look at this debate, it's, it's all about the Bill of Rights as we've come to understand it. What was added? I'm particularly interested in the first debate they have, which is how will it be added? And the fact that James Madison and others were pretty adamant that they should be added by interweaving the amendments, literally amending the constitution. You don't, you don't have a first amendment or a second amendment at the end. You interweave new text, you add stuff to article one, section nine, um, and the ways in which these two competing notions of adding stuff carry with it different implications for how you literally look at and think about the constitution. Um, and understand then that, that sort of articles one through seven, if you're not gonna be changing them, you're just gonna be adding stuff at the end, it becomes hard to see it as anything but the stuff made at a particular moment in time. Uh, it's sort of like a geological slice of time rather than a mixture of stuff. Um, and then I look at, at the uh, debate over the National Bank, which I mentioned, which better than any debate in the period gets at the question of the extent of the national government's authority and whether or not it is, as James Madison famously says, to sort of precipitate the debate, a system of strictly limited and enumerated powers, or if there are other sources of power and where those sources come from um, and how this carries with it implications of whether the constitution is discreetly textual, like you can trace power to language, or if there's other kinds of powers sort of lurking outside of the text. And then lastly, Jay's treaty um, has to do with the idea of constitutional, uh, potential constitutional contradiction. If the constitution says two things that maybe contradict one another, uh, because in this instance, this very explosive uh, political debate that really divides the country more than anything to this point over whether or not this treaty that John Jay has negotiated with the British that in the eyes of many is too favorable to the British will or will not be carried into effect. If the people are angry about something in their society and people are out in the streets protesting the Jay Treaty, they're very angry about it. It says the president and the Senate make treaties, but those who are in the House of Representatives who represent this huge percentage of the American population that despises the treaty 
feels a sort of, you know, getting back to ideas of popular sovereignty, they feel as though the people's sort of sovereign authority has in a sense manifested itself and spoken and the constitution needs to take this into account. So you get this, this really interesting debate about whether the House of Representatives as the organ of this popular movement has a say in constitutional matters that a strict reading of the text might not have licensed. So you get these different debates that bring different parts of the constitution to the fore, but I think are part of this broader conversation of what does it actually mean to claim the constitution means something and how people have that debate. Yeah, so in the epilogue, you say, quote, beneath disagreement about the constitution's meaning, in other words, often lies a shared conception of the constitution's constitution. Um, when like considering today, like an originalist and a living uh, constitutionalist, um, what, what uh, shared assumptions would they be operating on? Would it just be that they both assume that something can't be stagnant and evolving at the same time or are there other um, shared assumptions of fixity? Great. So I think that's the big one that this creates a, it sort of bifurcates the choices that either, either you treat the constitution as fixed at a moment in time, and it can only be changed in certain formal lawful ways, most prominently through article five amendment, or you treat the constitution as something that is not that, that is not fixed at all, but is evolving and sort of changing through ordinary litigation practice as society and public opinion evolve. So I think that debate between originalists and living constitutionalists would have been largely inconceivable in say the 1770s. You know, my stronger argument is that it still didn't make a great deal of sense come 1787, 88, but it begins to make a lot of sense uh, by the end of the 18th century. Although the 19th century plays a huge, huge role in sort of calcifying it and there's a lot more to be said about about that but it's but it's not simply the notion of fixity i think it's also um the idea of what kind of an object the constitution is that usually originalists and living constitutionalists share an understanding of the constitution as a written document that is discrete positive law that can be pointed to here and then there's just a debate about whether or not that text is exclusive or that text must necessarily be understood based on the precedents that have built up on top of it, sort of Protestant versus Catholic readings of the text, if you will. Um, but beneath that is a sort of a shared assumption about the Constitution's textual nature. Um, and I think the same thing about the founding moment that the Constitution was created in a sense in 1787, 88, and then it's been amended over time, but a sort of shared notion of an act of creation, a moment of creation, and then the disagreements follow from there. So I think, I think there are a whole range of ways in which disagreements today presuppose a kind of shared set of assumptions. Yeah, so um, at also in the epilogue at the near the end of it, when you talk about fixity as an optional set of norms and quote, any conception of the constitution is made by a similarly optional set of norms, how far would you take this argument? Because there's still part of my mind that says, when you write a constitution, 
in the way the we did um the united states there has to be at least some like ontological senses or categories um or characteristics of it that are dispositively decided or do you really still think that like from the top down um how we think about the constitution is um contingent choices based on whatever norms or values that we uh that we want the system to um perpetuate great question um my answer partly depends upon how we think about a few things so i wouldn't say that i'm trying to make a point that is so radical as to suggest that the whole thing, top to bottom, could easily be reimagined in any conceivable way. But I do want us to ask why not? Is, is it because there is something about what was written or the fact it was written that prevents us from doing that? Or is it a sick, at this point over two centuries old set of intersubjective assumptions that constitute this object in such a way that it's very hard to not only argue about it in certain kinds of ways or make certain claims about it, but you know, literally see it in a, in, in a different way that doesn't just violate basic intuitions of common sense. And if we start to appreciate how maybe some of that, which, which, which creates a constitution that we can't really change. I mean, unless we're talking about generations and generations of rethinking it, that that owes perhaps more to those intersubjective, if you will, cultural assumptions than anything that's perhaps just there. And then it gets us to kind of potentially offer a new account of what's firm and built into the constitution and why it can't be changed or what would be necessary to change it. But you know, what I would emphasize is that we didn't have to see fixity as, as at odds with evolutionary change. We didn't have to see a written constitution as positive and exclusive rather than something that bled imperceptibly into broader notions of non-positive fundamental law. There were different ways to have a written constitution, even if we would say, this is pretty clear. There's going to be two houses of Congress. I don't really think we can have three. So yeah, I mean, I, I that seems to make perfect sense. This maps out a whole set of things that don't exist in the general principles of law that are pretty contingent to America. Are we going to have one president or three? What are the requirements of that president? There's definitely certain things that are specified that seem pretty straightforward and clear. But within that, there's still a massive field of possibility that the fact we see it one way and not another um, seems to owe itself to how we've learned to debate it and been socialized in that world rather than the mere fact that certain things were laid down. So I think that's a way of saying, I don't disagree with your point, but I think that point still leaves room for far more um, rethinking than perhaps we, we um, are accustomed to is what I'm trying to get us to see, that things that we take for granted might be more contingent than we think. And that's not bad. 
human rights is contingent. People, you know, and that's, that, that doesn't mean it's, it's weak or it's unimportant. Uh, a lot of the things that human beings have dreamed up just because they weren't inevitable and weren't sort of written in the stars or, or aren't kind of preordained by some sort of fixed notion of the universe or human nature doesn't make them any less weak. In some ways, you could argue it makes them more powerful, more, more impressive, more worthy of defense because it, it marks a choice that deserves justification in defense. Yeah, I want to end our discussion of the book by giving you free license to take off the hat of a historian for a moment and put on the hat of a politician or political theorist and asking what you would want to see either like change with the Constitution, like form of amendment or how we imagine and think about it. Since after all, you end the book with a call to action for us to imagine a new what the constitution ought to be. I think it's only fitting that I uh, redress the question back to you. Fair enough. Um, you know, most historians are uncomfortable taking off the historian's hat, but I think it's important for just the reasons you said to think in these terms. So two things I think I'll emphasize. One is the idea of the people's sovereignty and its relationship to constitutional change. I think often, we don't have the robust debates that we should about this. The unwillingness to try to amend the constitution or even think about what that might consist of, or even think about what it might mean that the people are sovereign in a non-inert way. You know, the idea of the sovereign is sleeping. At any point it could be reactivated. We could call a constitutional convention. We never have, we've never called a second one. I think it's a great disservice to a lot of the things that the founding generation talked about, particularly federalists when they defended the constitution during ratification, no doubt for, with rhetorical and political needs in mind, but this emphasis that this is a first draft in part because there's all these opportunities for the sovereign people to play an ongoing role in it. I think they'd be pretty shocked at, by how little the constitution has been amended. Yes, the thresholds were set pretty high. Yes, they thought they were setting them pretty low compared to the Articles of the Confederation. But the fact that we just, for, for decades now, have no engagement with that, with, with these, these earlier robust debates of change and what it might consist of, increasingly looking to the Supreme Court to do that work through kind of legalese, strikes me as, as, as an impoverished feature of our constitutionalism that, that, that speaks to a failure of imagination. Second thing I would point to, which gets to work that is currently in process, is different features of the Constitution. I think perhaps none more important than the preamble. The preamble has been deleted from the Constitution from a legal standpoint. Uh, since 1905, the Supreme Court has made it clear that it has no legal content. That's basically ratified what Joseph Stories and others said. But in the early years, people thought the preamble meant a lot of things that were important. Anti-federalists were very worried that it basically gave general police power to the federal government. I can appreciate why one wouldn't want a reading of the preamble that said, these are the enumerated ends of governance because that doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense. But there's a whole lot of room in between that. And there's an amazing history that I'm trying to write now that hasn't been written of people using the preamble, drawing on the preamble, thinking that it meant a variety of things. One thing it meant to certain people's eyes was that the Constitution had been created by a national people. 
by a people of the United States. And as a result, the national government had certain obligations or duties based on that requirement. Anti-slavery advocates in the early Republic repeat, repeatedly grabbed hold of the preamble and sort of pointed to things that it allegedly promised that demanded that Congress do more to try to gradually abolish slavery or choke it than they had thus far been willing to do. I think it's a shame that the preamble has been reduced to rhetorical flourish. It's the part of the constitution people know best, but I, I think Neil Gorsuch recently talked about how the constitution, how it began, and he skipped the preamble. He, he jumped to article one, and that's not an incorrect observation on his part as I think at this point in this, I can't remember if this was his in his confirmation hearings or not, but whether he was or was not yet a Supreme Court justice certainly made sense in, in that capacity that he would say that because it's factually true, more or less. But I think that's a shame that there isn't, you, you can imagine a different kind of constitutionalism that sees the preamble as gesturing us in different directions to think about things in different ways uh, that is wholly in keeping with with, with what could have happened. So if we don't want to talk very much about the preamble, why is that? <laughs> it can't just be because we, it withered. I, I think it's worth having a conversation about why is this big part of the constitution that begins the constitution? Why does it begin the constitution? Why did Governor Morris and those on the committee of style write it this way? What did people think about it during ratification? When it came to debating the national bank, doesn't it matter that all these people who defended the constitutionality of the bank invoked the preamble? What does it tell us that they made arguments that would get laughed out of court today? They were really smart people. They knew a lot about the constitution. Do we have anything to learn from that? And if not, we still learn something from thinking about it and rejecting it. So I think there's these different ways in which we can engage with the constitution in a more imaginative way. And I think it can be really helpful, especially in a moment like now, to take a step back and say, we've been doing it this way for a while, and that carries with it a set of assumptions. Well, what if we thought outside the box in this way or that way? Um, you know, my friend Jack Balkin talks about how things go from off the wall to on the wall. Um, well, why don't we think about not just interpretation of constitutional provisions in those terms, but the constitution itself. Are there ways of thinking about the constitution that used to be robust, that have fallen out of favor? What would happen if we brought them back? That doesn't mean we should, but what just thinking in a broader term about what even is the constitution and what should it be doing for us? I don't think we have that debate or conversation enough. It's usually too focused. It's what does the 14th amendment mean? Is abortion protected? Is, does the president have these powers or not? As opposed to what even is this thing that, that, that we are all pledging fealty to? And what does it require of us and how should we think about it? And with that, the last question I always ask the guests is, what are the top three books that they would recommend besides theirs, of course, um, relating to the subjects of their books? You could talk about the American founding, American constitutionalism, British constitutionalism, uh, the four is yours. Great, so there are many I could choose, but I, I suppose I will emphasize these three. Um, Gordon Wood's The Creation of the American Republic, 1776 to 1789, now over 50 years old, is still absolutely classic. And I still draw on it heavily. It's such a marvelous study 
of American constitutionalism between the Declaration of Independence and the federal constitution, but it does an especially good job of both one, showing how unfamiliar a lot of ways of talking about constitutionalism were at the time and how it dramatically changed through debate. It, it gives a great sense of how people at the time were standing on a kind of quicksand, that things were really changing and were really plastic and they're really, they're, there's a lot of activity. Second, I would say Jack Rakoff's original meaning, um, which I think is still just a really superb account of the early constitution and how we should think about what happened at the constitutional convention and the central issues that the framers struggled with. Um, I think especially his chapter on the presidency, I return to it constantly. He does such a good job of showing, I think, how there was nothing that was harder in some ways that the framers had to do than to create the American presidency because there were no working models for it. A national Republican executive was really brand new. And the interlocking problems of how many executives, what powers, how do you select this executive or these executives created so many issues that it, it, it really forced them to navigate uncharted waters in creative ways. I think he does a wonderful job explicating that issue in particular. And then lastly, I would choose Mary Sarah Builder's book, Madison's Hand, Revising the Constitutional Convention, which is effectively a biography of James Madison's notes on the Constitutional Convention, which is arguably the most famous or widely read primary source in all of American history, because it's the source we have for understanding what happened at the Constitutional Convention. About a, a dozen other delegates took notes, but they took them sporadically, not in great detail. Madison's notes are the source that allows us to say anything about what happened there. And as Builder shows, we should not just focus on what the notes say or a record of, but the notes themselves, as, as they are a very interesting source in their own right, because James Madison revised them to a certain extent at a later date, finished them at a later date, that there are a whole range of different things that went into the notes that should force us to think about the kind of record they are and what they are a record of. I think she does a really good job showing that they're not simply a record of Philadelphia in 1787, but also a record of how constitutionalism as an idea is sort of evolving, that Madison is altering the notes, not necessarily in a pernicious way, he's just trying to clarify them, but his terminological choices, what he considers important or not, is shaped by his ongoing understanding of what matters to American constitutionalism. He didn't necessarily think he or anyone else that they were making the constitution, capital T, capital C. And as they start to realize that they have, that changes how you think about Philadelphia. So it, 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 it requires, it, it encourages us to think about things in a not altogether different way than I'm trying to encourage us to think about them. And with that, I once again, thank you so much, Professor Guy Knapp for coming on today and taking time out of your day. And I highly recommend that uh, all listeners check out his book, The Second Creation, Fixing the American Constitution in the Founding Era. Thank you.